Many of y'all wouldn't know this, but one of the reasons why I'm excited for next Sunday is because we found out we found out that we can actually have grilled pheasant. Looking forward to that. Manny will be making grilled pheasant. Anybody ever had grilled pheasant? Tastes like chicken. It's a bird. A pheasant is a bird. It's working on my material. All right, we got a lot to talk about today. So we are, y'all got me up at 11.05. Edit on the fly. Interesting. Let's pray. Father, we have been in a series designed to, to understand things that we've always observed From a different angle. Our goal in this series is not to create some sort of feel good, Gnostic, sort of unknown truths, but these are things that have been present for some time, but they just haven't been our emphasis. Lord, I pray that you would help us to appreciate the reality that our worldview as modern-day Christians is not the same worldview as those in whom the Bible was written to. And as best as we can, as much as we try to enter into the mindset of the writers of Scripture and those who it was originally written to, we find ourselves at a disadvantage because we live in a different time than they did. We live in a scientific age, a post-scientific age, and they lived more in a supernatural age. So I pray this morning, Lord, as I do my best to try to communicate these truths, whatever is not true, Lord, I pray that it would be stricken from the memory of everyone listening, but whatever is true, I pray that it would burn in their hearts as justification for pursuing an endless fascination with your word. And if nothing I say today accomplishes that, then I haven't preached sufficiently. May an endless fascination with your word, which means an endless fascination with you, be what this series, as unusual as it is for our church, but this series would be what it is. It would accomplish that goal, if nothing else, for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. I am going to the dentist Tuesday because I was 
watching Black Panther last night. I liked it. More on that later. And all of a sudden, my tooth just fell out. I was like, wait a minute, hold on. I started sounding like Mike Tyson or something. I was like, oh, no. I said, man, Lord, I got to preach tomorrow. So, oh, well, my Fs will have a little bit more cinema. And my S's over here looking like Mad Magazine when I smile. Thank God for dentists. And thank God for his work. At the beginning of the sermon last week, I said there were two parts that we're going to look at. The deep and the darkness. Part one was the deep, which I'm not going to restate uh, anything from last week. The deep was part one. The darkness is part two. Today we begin part two. The darkness. Now, as I prayed, the primary goal of this series is to cultivate an endless fascination with the word of God but it's also to help us fight against the psychological impact of COVID of the last, three, the last few years. We've all been affected in various ways and our relationship with the Lord has as well. And so this series is also to help us take seriously our mantra this year is to be grown and own our call to persevere to the end. So today's message is in hope to further that reality, and we begin with the light. Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5. And I quote, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and it was morning, the first day. There are four distinct truths that we're going to look at this morning, but we're only going to get to three of them because of time. But I want to make sure you understand again what I mean by supernatural storyline of the Bible. The worldview of the people that the Bible was written to had a different way they understood civilization. They were surrounded around other religious philosophies that had gods that they worshiped. And these gods all had creation stories. They had all kinds of ways to understand and describe why they are the civilization with the right God to worship. And the people that were originally part of God's kingdom were surrounded around these civilizations, just like we are today. We are inundated with worldviews that rival the one in Christ. They had a supernatural worldview. They weren't imagining the world through a scientific lens the way we do. They didn't have the questions that we ask, particularly Genesis. God is primarily addressing supernatural, not necessarily scientific, elements, narratives, and actions by other civilizations. And so when he had Moses and others write the scriptures, he's writing to the people in that day and age who understand what's happening around them. He's not writing primarily to people thousands of years later who will look back and be like, oh, okay. He's writing to a particular people with a particular worldview, and it's much more supernatural than ours is. 
So the question is, what truths is God communicating to them that we can also glean from? By supernatural, I mean God is distinguishing the reality of evil supernatural beings that give messages to humanity that rival the true narrative of God. And so he's addressing that even in this particular scene in Genesis 1. Last week, we zoomed in to see God's authority over the deep. Today, we'll look specifically at his authority over the darkness. And so verse 3, it says this, and God said, let there be light. There was light. Now, last week, I went into very surface detail about some of the creation myths that Israel had the most contact with, right? We looked at Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Roman creation stories. What I didn't tell you last week was how sexual and how complex these relation, these creation myths are from these other religions. They're really bizarre. Last week, we'd heard about Atom, who becomes Ra, the sun god. I told you a little bit about heliopoverty, which is Egyptian, Kemetic. It's a weird storyline filled with deceit, sex scandals, transgenderism. It's really bizarre. The Dictionary of Demons and Deities says this about Atom. It says, being alone in the nun, which was the watery abyss we talked about last week, the God had no female partner with whom to produce offspring. In a manner characteristic of a creator God, Atom was a unity embracing both masculine and feminine elements. Plurality is imminent in the primordial nature of Atom. In the same manner, creator goddesses like Isis and Neith were masculine two-thirds in their nature and feminine one-third in their nature. Atom was a man-woman, he, she. It goes on to say that creation was an act of Atom pleasuring himself and creating the world from that. That's bizarre. Keep in mind that this story would have been what the Jews who were captive to the Egyptians for 400 years would have been trained to believe. These kinds of stories are what they believe. Now, why is it bizarre? Why are these stories? Why are they sexual? Why are these things? Because the people are trying to explain the world from their experience. They don't have any other way to describe how certain things come into place. So for them, creation comes through sexual intercourse. And then so in their minds, the creation of the world comes through some form of sexual intercourse. And since their God is a male, female, he has sex with himself and creates the world. This is a creation narrative that the Jews believed until God clarified reality. 
So when they hear this in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. When they hear this, they hear, wait, there's no struggle. There's no gods fighting bulls and other primordial, primeval elements. Wait a minute, there's no sex scandal here. There's no deception. There's no weirdness. Wait a minute, they didn't emerge from the darkness and then create the sun? And This is pretty plain. It's God said, let there be light. And there was light. Very simple. This is a matter-of-fact statement that denotes God's authority over darkness. This is what God's committing, submitting to them first, is that darkness submits to him. This is an alpha and omega statement. Let there be light, and there was light. Darkness in the ancient Near East, as we heard last week, represents terror and chaos and evil something that they feared. In the Bible, darkness represents a couple different things. One, it represents the terror that is God at times. You see this in Exodus 19, when they're out Mount Sinai, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightnings and a thick cloud. And on the mountain with very loud trumpet blasts so that all the people in the camp trembled. They see this darkness come over this cloud and they say, Moses, you can go ahead and go up there. We'll stay right here. Darkness in the Bible also represents where people are that are without God. But it also represents judgment of God. Darkness represents hell in the Bible. It represents God's judgment. Mark 15, 33, 34 says this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elahi, Elahi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when God's judgment from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness covers the world. We see that darkness again in Exodus 10, 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Mm. Now, wait till we get to the fact that the three hours of darkness on the cross correlate with the three hours, the three days of darkness in Egypt, but we're not there yet. This darkness is significant. It represents hell as well. Mark 8, 11 and 12, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Biblically speaking, darkness often represents God's judgment. But for the people whom Genesis was written for, darkness serves a different purpose. This has nothing to do with hell. It has nothing to do with the terror that is God. It has nothing to do with where people are apart from God. It serves a different purpose. Darkness in Genesis 1 is to show that it submits to him. And then when he says, let there be light, it offers no pushback. There's no dispute. There's no war between the God of darkness and the God of light to see who will come on top. When God says, let there be light, there's light. It's case closed. It's case closed. God is demonstrating his authority over darkness, which for the Jews, whom Genesis was written, coming out of an Egyptian worldview, this is a powerful statement. The God that saved you, that you worship, created the world, not Atom, not Ra, not Isis, Yahweh, and he did it in such a way that the darkness that they boast in submits to him. Last week, we looked at Psalm 74 to make the point about the sea, right? That the sea represented sea gods and deities that these other civilizations would have worshipped, that Israel would have feared. And we looked at these verses. Here's what we read last week, beginning in verse 12. Yet my God, yet God, my king, from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave them as food for the creatures of wilderness. You split open the springs and brooks. You dried up the ever-flowing streams. We see that God is using the imagery of the other gods that these other civilizations worship and saying, I crushed them. But he keeps going, staying in the same mindset, helping the Jews see that the gods of these other, is God of these other gods. He continues in verse 16. He says, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. So staying in that mindset that the God that you worship, Israel, is the God who takes the, uh, these other gods and puts them in captivity. Not just the sea, but the darkness. He stays with the train of thought. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. 
You see, what God is doing is the Lord is not establishing a scientific order of creation. He's establishing a cosmic deity distinction. This isn't about the order of things that God created. It's about which God brought order to these things that are created. He's making a distinction. He's explaining these gods said this. In my creation narrative, I'm going to show you that all the things that they claim to be are in authority to me. And this is our challenge. When we read this, we think, oh, this is, how does this work? Because we're thinking scientifically, God speaking supernaturally. I created this order. And I'm laying it out in the way that these other gods have claimed. And I'm showing you I have authority over them. When God's people heard these verses, they were supposed to be encouraged to stand their ground and worship Yahweh, not be intimidated by other gods. They were supposed to be excited. Now, notice the point here is not that it doesn't say that God created the darkness. That's intentional. The darkness is already there. Remember the stack, right? The Holy Spirit is on top, the waters, the darkness, the earth. God isn't saying I created the darkness. He's saying the darkness submits to me. The point isn't who created it, and I think God intentionally does that because he wants them to think the gods that they claim of the darkness and they claim to be of the light, I tell them what to do. They listen to the God who brought you out of Egypt through the Red Sea. One of the, another way in this passage, which is kind of comical, the way God shows his authority over darkness is he renames it. Look at verse 4. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. So here's a darkness that is an evil. A bunch of deities are a part of this darkness in terms of the Egyptian and other civilization creation narratives. And here God is saying, oh, that darkness, oh, I named it. I renamed it night. Now, I don't have time to explain the significance of the authority in giving names. But there's a reason why God calls Jacob Israel. Why he says to Abraham, your name is Abram, your name is now Abraham. There's a reason why Nebuchadnezzar, why he named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Y'all know who that is. Y'all know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? But that's not their names. But as the king, he renamed them, called Daniel Belshazzar. But since Daniel's writing it, Daniel's calling himself Daniel, right? There's a reason why Jesus called Simon Peter. There's an authority and something significant about renaming something. 
Names are important in the ancient Near East. Not so much to us, but they're important in the ancient Near East. And by renaming darkness, night, and evening, God is showing that it submits to him. And by, by default, whatever deities that you've heard of, they claim to be the gods of light and darkness, and I tell them what to do. This is what God's communicating. More specifically, let's look at Genesis 1 again. Here's the second thing he's communicating. So the first is that it submits to him. Darkness submits to light, to God. The second is this. Let's look at Genesis 1, 3 again. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. Now let's go to Genesis 1.14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and hours. And let, the, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night and the stars. It's the sun and the moon, right? And it goes on. We read this and we think, how does this square up? Because he said, let there be light on day one, and then on day four, he makes the sun and the moon. We asked this question, but they weren't asking this question. And God wasn't giving an answer to this question because he's speaking to a civilization to make a different point. The other thing I didn't tell you about the other creation myths, or I didn't say it as robustly as I could, is that many of their narratives identify their Yahweh as the God of the sun, the God of the moon. So in Egyptian theology, Ra is considered the sun god. That's who Atom was, Atom and then Ra. They always create the sun, sunlight, and then the moon and so forth. There's gods of the moon and gods of the sun. Do you know none of those creation stories ever say they created light and then created sunlight? None of them make that distinction. They're the god of light, which is sunlight, or the god or goddesses of the moon, which is moonlight. They don't make a distinction from darkness to light apart from the sun. But in Genesis 1, God is showing that he is the God of light and the God of sunlight. This is not scientific. It's supernatural. He's making a point. These gods are the gods of sunlight, day four. I'm the God of light, day one. They worship a day four God. You worship the day one God. He's making a point. In the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, it says this. Palestinian toponymy, which is basically the study of place names, study of places and names. Palestinian toponymy of biblical times reflects, nevertheless, the Canaanite cult of the sun god as shown by the place names Beth Shemesh, En Shemesh, and Ur Shemesh. 
It says, they preserve the memory of sanctuaries devoted to the solar deity. All right, so what does that mean for us? What does that actually mean? Here's what they're saying. When we read verses like this in Joshua 15, 7, where they're giving the inheritance to the Jews, to a tribe, when it says this, and the boundary goes up to Deber in the valley of Achor, and so northward, turning, turning toward Gilgal, which is the opposite ascent of Adamim, which is on the sun side of the valley, and the boundary passes along the rivers of En Shemesh and ends at En Rogel. When we read that, we just think, well, okay, we'll just skip past this. We don't know these names. <laughs> I don't know where this is at all. Like, and should we be sitting there and, and, and trying to pronounce, I, I do, never mind, you just by yourself. You just skip it. That's when you start seeing how much more you're going to read today. You start flipping your Bible like, how much, how much more time I got? I think I'm going to skip this part and go over here to, to chapter 7. When we read verses like Joshua 15:10 and the boundary of cir boundary circles west of Bala to Mount Seir passes along the northern shoulder mount of Mount Jerem that is Kesalon and goes down to Beth Shemesh and passes along by Tinma and then Joshua 19:14 and the inheritance of Naphtali one of the tribes of Israel and when it says in the territory of its inheritance included Zorah Eshtal Ur Shemesh what the Dictionary of Demons and Deities is saying is all of those names, Beth Shemesh, Ur Shemesh, En Shemesh, are all names of cities that worship the Canaanite sun god. And God is saying, I'm sending you to their neighborhoods to live where they live and oust their worship of a fake sun god. I created that. This is what it's saying. When we read these names that we think are just names, we have no idea what this means. The Jews read this and they recognize, oh, that's, that's where they live. Oh, they, they worship over there. Oh, we're going there? Uh, are you sure? Why do you think Gideon was like, Lord, um, Gideon was like Conway, Lord, I know you, I know you righteous, but let me can I just do one thing? Can, I, can, can you turn the, the thing into to wet and make the fleece dry, the grass dry? Okay, I'll do that. The next day. Wow. Okay, Lord, I'm saying. <laughs> Don't get upset at me. Because he understood what the Lord is asking him to do and where he's asking him to go, and it was all worship of false gods that he was afraid of. And he said, I, I can't beat them without all these people. And God said, I got you. I'm going to send 300 to their 30,000. It's like, huh? Why? Because those guys submit to me. Come on. Amen. They submit to me. I created the heavens and the earth. When I tell you to go move over there, this is your land, this is your land. But they're in the land. I know. I know. And you're going to be in there shortly. This is what God is saying. These evil gods identify themselves as the creator of light, that is the sun, but none of them don't create light and then create the sun. God is making an alpha and omega statement. Now, we'll see later in this series why this is true. But one of the reasons geography is so important in the Bible is because God intends to take over the places where these cosmic powers of evil, of darkness. That's what he does. 
We saw that in the transfiguration where Jesus is at Mount Hermon, a place where angels, where the Jews believed angels rebelled from that mountain in Genesis 6. That was a high concentration of evil. We saw in Matthew 16 when Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail. He was standing in front of an actual place where they thought that the Canaanite gods had gods that came from hell through that river into the world. It was a high concentration of evil. Jesus wasn't saying the gates of hell will not prevail or upon Peter I'll build my rock. He wasn't saying it just about Peter. He was literally saying the gates of hell that we're standing in front of where these cosmic powers of darkness reign will not prevail over you because I'm starting right here. I'm declaring right now in front of them this gate that they have no authority here. These creation narratives do not establish light that is not the sun. They're the sun gods, the moon gods. God intentionally brings forth light that is not the sun, showing that these other gods that claim to be the god of the sun and the moon cannot really claim to be the god of light. So if they're the god of sunlight, cool. God said, let there be light three days before he created the sun and the moon. He's trying to get his people to see him, know him, and be like, we believe in Yahweh. And so when he does supernatural acts like part the Red Sea, he's showing them. Let me, I'm not just telling you this. Let me show you this. When they go look at the promised land, which we'll get there later, and they're like, man. Those people are giants. And Joshua was the only gangster. He was like, hey, I'm ready. And everybody else was like, we're not. They were terrified. Because God was telling them, look, I'm sending you to a land for what? He never said it was empty. <laughs> he never said it was empty. He just said, I'm sending you there. He never said it was an uninhabited. He just said, y'all just going to take over the people that I let build it up for you. God created the sun and the moon on day four. Because God is not the God of sunlight. He's light. These other gods are day four gods. We serve the day one God. Third. And I'm blowing through this because we, you know, we started a little late. And, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of moving through. And also, I feel like my tooth is whistling or something. <laughs> like, I'm just waiting to go. <laughs> All right, third point. And I've hit this a month, but I need to make this point because I think I want to I get this, drill this in our heads. This is the third point, that light in this scene in Genesis is not scientific. It's supernatural. It's not scientific. It's not really the point of the passage from what God is trying to do. I want to make a quote from a theologian, Michael Heiser, that I greatly respect and who I think is one of the most solid theologians on the stuff that we're talking about. And he makes this point, he says this, two things that he says. Well, more than two, but two categories. He says this first. The context for understanding Genesis is not the Protestant Reformation. 
don't get me wrong, Luther and Calvin, solid dudes. Solid dudes, good expositors, but they're too far removed from the original context. They don't even have all the tools that we have today to understand them. That's not the context for understanding Genesis. The context for understanding Genesis is not 20 and 21st century evangelicalism. We're even further removed. And to be honest, we're too politically driven. We don't know how to process Christianity apart from politics. He says it's not post-Darwinian Christianity, where once Darwinism comes, now we have to fight with science. I don't think Christians should fight against science. Science is amazing. I personally think science is, describes the providence of God and how he works in the world. It may make claims to rival it, but I think science is an amazing reality. But modern day science is also not the context in which we understand Genesis. And lastly, I added this, it's also not what am I comfortable with and what I agree with. That's not the context for understanding Genesis or anything that's challenging in the Bible. Michael Heiser makes this point, the context for understanding Genesis is the historical, religious, literary, and scientific context in which it was written. And he puts scientific in quotations. It wasn't just me. Because he makes this point. He said, God did not create a new culture for Israel that was foreign to the rest of the known world at the time. He didn't. He gave them a morality that was foreign. But they weren't living. He didn't give them a worldview that people would understand 3,000 years later, but they won't get right now. That's what he's saying. He says, God worked in and through ancient Israel as it culturally was. He did not change Israel's worldview so he could dispense revelation to them. He said, look, this is who you are. This is where you're from. I'm going to explain to you truth based on so you can understand it and then apply it. I'm not speaking to you outside of something you have no idea what I'm talking about. All these laws that I'm creating and all this stuff I'm telling you is in conjunction with what you've heard, and it's contrasting many, if not all, of those things. Since God's revelation to Israel was culturally decipherable and culturally consistent, not alien to the culture. So God isn't creating narratives in Genesis that will be understood by modern-day Christians, but not them. It's often not understood by modern-day Christians, but they got it. They understood what he was saying because they knew where they lived and what the, what the issues were. For us, we read Beth Shemesh and be like, I don't know what's going on over there. That sounds like a hill I don't want to walk up. But to them, it's a place where they worship a God, a sun God, and our God who created the sun is saying, this is where we're going. So we're going. The point of Genesis 1 is to clarify who brought the cosmos into order, which God did this. Which God brought the cosmos into order? Baal? Atom? The Assyrian gods? Did Zeus? Gaia? They're not asking was this a literal 24 hours, six days? Or They're not asking those questions, and God's not answering those questions. God's not clarifying young earth or old earth. He's clarifying whose earth. I created the earth. Me, not them. 
For those whom Genesis was written to, the point in the light distinction between let there be light in 1.3 and let there be lights in 1.14 is that God is the initial sustaining light and that these other gods who claim to be light didn't create light. They identify with the sun whom God says, I made that three days after I established light. The sun as a light source is unnecessary to our God. But it is the only way that those gods can associate with the light. Let me give you more textual evidence for this. Revelation 22. Beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and, and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Remember I told you last week that because God knows everything, he's an alpha and omega, he says things at the beginning that he'll prove later at the end. So you see these parallels. Last week we heard that the sea is the abyss, the deep in Genesis 1, 2. But then in 21, 1, the sea will be no more. Right? We talked about what the sea represented. It's not talking about water. There'll be some oceans for some of y'all that want to lay out. <laughs> Maybe. I haven't been there yet, but I'm hoping. For y'all at least. I don't lay out. We see that God is saying this thing that's here at the beginning won't be necessary at the end. These scientific elements that, I, that are dependent, that we need right now, we won't be dependent on in the end. The sea, the sun, the sky, all of it. In the judgment seat of Revelation 20, it says that sky fled from its presence, from its presence. It was nowhere to be found. These elements that we see that we're governed by, that are beautiful, that we need to sustain life on earth, he says, I created them, I will bring them to an end, and I will be the sustenance for all the people who believe in me, who persevere to the end. Not these other gods, not these other civilizations, the people who trust me. The light and let there be light comes from the sun, S-O-N, not the sun, S-U-N. And when it's all said and done, the light will again be the sun, S-O-N, not the sun, S-U-N. All the deities that claim to be the God of the sun are nothing compared to the sun that is God. And this is what God is communicating. This is what he's saying to his people. It's for us, but he wasn't talking to us. He's helping them see, wow. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? As I said last week, we have to take our responsibility as believers very seriously. 
We have to fight against the presumption to see grace as a lowering of the standard instead of just forgiving us when we don't keep it. Because we may not worship the sun god, but we worship gods of convenience, comfort. We worship the god of non-suffering. So if you experience any suffering in this life, everyone's supposed to rally around you. We worship the gods of taking up offenses for other people that we don't even know. We don't worship gods of grace. We worship gods of accusation. All of these things affect us, and we have to get back to, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does my God say? How does my God say act? Not the God of the culture. There's no cancel culture in Christ. The church is not the law. We don't hear an accusation and go arrest somebody. We don't think, well, why do I need to participate in church? Why do I have to go to church? Why do I have to be a member? Why do I have to do all these things? Probably because God died on the cross so he could establish part of that. The early church wasn't asking those questions. They gathered together. They couldn't wait to be together. They heard the preaching. They prayed. They broke bread together. They didn't ask those questions. They knew God was probably more than we do. We get our theology from Calvin. They got it straight from the prophet. They know this better than we do. They're not asking these questions. But it's human nature. Hebrews 10 says, look, don't forget to say gathering together as some have come to do. It's human nature to not want to meet with God and his people. But God says, don't do that. There are gods that rival the narrative that the God that you serve, that you said you believe in. They rival his narrative. And I don't know what that is for you. I'm just naming a bunch of things. But you have to be grown, take ownership and think, okay, what are the narratives that I'm believing? What things are hindering me? What ideas, what thoughts, what attitudes are stopping me? from really honoring the Lord. Because let me tell you, you can be fascinated by all these details that I'm preaching, but they don't mean anything. They're great things that impress you because of the way I say them, but God is not impressed by what I say. He's impressed by how we apply them. What do we do with them? What's stopping you from creating an endless, cultivating an endless fascination with God? That's the question you need to ask. So I'm glad that there's some, whoa, bars. I, thank you. But honestly, if those bars take, don't take hold in your life, then you'll be behind bars like everybody else. Bars. We don't teach this stuff. We're not impressive. Who am I? I want the God who I serve to be like, I, I, I like that angle you had. But if we don't take it seriously in our own lives, then what good is it? What's the point? What's the point? The God we serve is the day one God. The God that our culture serves 
is a modern day God. Who will you worship? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're, you're letting us approach your word from a little bit of a different angle. This isn't our typical line by line going through a passage series. But I thank you for that. I'll switch it up if it means it'll help us continue to cultivate an endless fascination with you. Father, I pray that, that whatever was said today, whatever was, was clearly articulated that was true, oh Lord, let it motivate us. Help us to not just agree in person, but forget in private. Help us to think, okay, what, what cultural gods am I submitted to? What, what's stopping me from having an endless fascination with you? Maybe some of us are just disappointed in you. Lord. Maybe we're like the psalmist who sometimes don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, why you let these things happen. Maybe that's us. Maybe we've just grown ambivalent or we got so used to not having to do certain things, we no longer think we need to do them. Father, help us to be very specific. I don't know where everyone is. I only know where I am. Help us to be very specific as we think through how do we cultivate an endless fascination and what's stopping us? What gods are we believing? What narratives are we believing that are not the narrative that is your word? And may that carry us to the end. For the things that we worship now won't even be necessary in the end. <laughs> even our marriages. It says the things that we love, our marriages, sex, and all these other things aren't even going to be relevant in eternity. Help us put these things in perspective so that we can stand before you and be even more fascinated than we've cultivated while we're here. For your glory and our good. Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. All right, yes. Remember that we uh, are receiving questions at 240-623-8076. Uh, we do have a couple in uh, right now. Uh, the first one is about the creation of the sun. Uh, and the question is, if uh, God is going to get rid of the sun, like it said in Revelation 22, um, why did he need to create it from the beginning? Why couldn't he just... Uh, yeah, why couldn't he just have... Um, that we'll just keep it there. Yeah, if God is going to uh, get rid of the sun, uh, like it says in Revelation 22, why did he create it in the first place, in the beginning? Uh, you know, the Bible doesn't answer that particular question, but uh, I'll give it a shot. I think it's because he's creating. In creating the world, he wanted to create a world with human beings that sort of functioned the way he, the, the angelic beings did, right? So Eden was a place, which we'll see very soon in the next two sermons. Eden is sort of a mountain where angelic beings, you know, divine beings, I'll say divine, because angels and demons, they're, they're specific things where divine beings and God and human beings, they interact. So in God creating that in heaven, there is no sun, there is no moon.
But God said, I'm going to create a place where these human beings will be made in my image and function in a world where everything will be sort of a mirror of what it is like in eternity. We see this in Exodus when they're describing, when God's describing the temple, this many cubits and this and this. And that you see that it's sort of a typology of, it's a type of what, the, what it'll look like in heaven. So the sun and the moon and these things represent light that is necessary in earth, but not when we're in eternity with God. So he created them so that our world mirrored, supposed to mirror what was happening there. And it was sort of this dual sort of reality. But then we know Genesis 3 happened, and that changed everything. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> the next question um, and remember, you can, uh, if you want your question to be asked, um, 2402, excuse me, 623-8076. That's 240-623-8076, because this one might be the last question. So uh, this question says, uh, what words or literary tools in the text make you say Genesis is not literal or scientific? So I didn't say Genesis is not literal, but I think the point is it's the intention of God in writing these things. So we're trying to understand what did the ancient Near Eastern Jew, descendant of Abraham, think about the world? We're not starting with, is it literal or scientific? That's a modern day understanding of the Bible. That's not the way they process the Bible. We're trying to understand what was the worldview or the mindset of the ancient Near East, the people whom this was initially written to, what is their mindset, right? And so, so you, now you're asking, what's the literary? Well, if you, if you look at, if you read any commentaries, you'll see that Genesis is really written like poetically. So they almost describe it. So this is why some people think it's not literal because the way that it's written, now we don't understand Hebrew poetry and things like that. That's not our, we're English, we just, they have a different form of writing, right? So the way that it's written, many people have said, this reads like some poetry. It reads in Hebrew poetic form that is not necessarily supposed to be taken literally. This is what a lot of people will say this. And then there's plenty of passages in the Bible where you think, okay, what is God trying to communicate? Is this literal? is the beast rising out of the sea literal, right? Like we understand grammar, we understand that the Bible has many different ways of explaining things, and the work of all of us, but particularly those who teach, is to figure out what is this, is this literal, is this symbolic, is this, is this, you know, we have to figure that out. But the literary reality is that even in the, the Hebrew word yom, the Hebrew word yom can mean a literal 24 hour day or a long period of time. So the word that they're using to describe that is using to describe day has a, a there's debatable reason for that. So again, but but I start with, and I think many people who are in this world they start with what the Bible was written to people in a context. The same way if you and I were talking, if I send you an email, it's in a context for you that you're going to understand. There's certain languages when I joke around and preach. And I say stuff, you understand what I mean because you understand a particular linguistics of the day. But if you read this 500 years from now, how would they interpret an email that I send to you? 
right? They have to understand, well, what was the culture of the day? And that's, that's kind of what we're doing here. I think because the order is what it is, I think there's a strong case to be, well, first of all, the ancient Near East wasn't scientific. <laughs> so that's, we're talking about the enlightenment period is when you start getting into science and reason and things like that, where faith and the supernatural element starts to leave out of the worldview and where reason, logic, and, and science, those things become more authoritative than, than simple faith was. So that's just world history can, can show you that. So that's what I would say. I mean, there's more to be said about that as we go through the series, but. Um. This question actually came came across uh, from from two people. I asked a little different, but um, the question is: Did God create darkness? <laughs> I can't answer that because I want to say something about that when we get to. Uh, the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel. I want to say something about that when we get to the Tower of... Actually, when we get to the Flood. So I, I'm not going to answer that right now. I'm not going to answer that. Great question, though. Keep it up. Just uh, if, if you ask a question and he makes a facial expression for a long period of time, it was a great question. Just sorry. <laughs> Well, because I know... So here's, because I know we're in a series and I know where we're going, and my, my, my temptation is to say all this stuff right now. So then when I say it in the series, you're like, okay, yeah, we heard that, we're not really. But those, those things require a little bit more precision than just like, no, yes, no, 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 no. I mean, you could say on one level, can anything exist without God, right? So on one level, you can answer it that way. Well. No, so the question is, did he create darkness? But what's the purpose of darkness? But we'll get, we'll, we'll talk about that later. All right, and um, this, I'm just making sure before, no, I'm not gonna make sure. Um, the last question that we have is um, more one of a more practical and probably very specific nature, but um, I'm gonna read it anyway in case you have something to say. Um, how should we, uh, Married people process differences with our spouses when it comes to understanding and undoing narratives, because you mentioned competing narratives, um, that may hinder how we each honor the Lord. That's a great question. So let me just say this first. We're about restoring and saving marriages, not causing any conflict. So if you marry couples, if I say something that causes conflict, that's your heart. Jesus said it was out of the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's you. So, You know, interesting, that's a good question. You know what I think? I think it would be, I think couples, so I do this in marriage counseling. I think it would be helpful if, you know, we think of the Bible as our story, our narrative, right? Most couples think of their story as what brought them together, like how they got married but they don't think of their marriage as an ongoing narrative, right? So if you take your marriage and mirror it with like the Bible, so you got like Genesis two, God brings Adam and Eve together, right? So God brings you together. Genesis three, temptation comes in and causes sin, right? 
I think it would be good for married couples to think like, okay, let's use that as sort of a, as a, as a formula, right? As a blueprint for how we think about our marriage. So here's how God brought us together. Everyone loves that story. That's at every wedding and there's pictures and there's, but people don't talk about, but then what temptations came in? What attitudes, desires, and thoughts came in that allowed, that, that justified to us why we don't submit to the standards that God put out? So in Genesis 3, it was, don't eat from this one tree, but you can have all of this, right? Well, in our marriages, what are the borders that God has put up, okay? One that people don't want to talk about is don't neglect having sex unless you mutually agree to do so. You teach that today, people will be offended. But that's what God said that. That's 1 Corinthians 7. One, husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. That's one that people don't like to talk about a lot. Well, I'm saying she just... The Bible, the Bible doesn't say, husbands, don't be harsh with your wives unless. It does, there's no unless, right? That's one. There's wives, submit to your husbands. Respect your husbands, right? You can look at, okay, here are the parameters that God's given us. What temptations have come in? What things have we believed that have now caused seminar that make it difficult for us to, to interact with each other? You know, sometimes it's just what, you know, fruits of the spirit are we not submitting to and relating to each other? I'll lastly say this, because already there's some husbands that's like, yes, I'm glad he said that. And some wives like, yep, see, I'm glad he said that. I'm for everyone. I'm an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> for everyone. For everyone. You know, the biggest conflicts in marriage are simply when God said love doesn't insist on its own way. And you would do, you could do a lot of due diligence by sitting down with your, by first doing it yourself. Okay, how am I insisting on my own way? What ways do I insist on my own way? And then you can ask that question. And then your spouse, and then you guys can have a conversation. Like, wow, I, I actually do insist on my own way. Some of these things we think are just cultural dynamics. And some of them are like, no, this is just what you want this done. You want her to do this. She wants you to do this. Well, I need to feel this way in order to have sex with you. Well, I need to feel this way in order. Where does the Bible say that? See, don't ask me that question because then I. <laughs> but I'm saying this is what we don't do. We kind of ride the cultural dynamic of our marriages, and then we wonder when things happen, like, what's happening? We just, we don't love each other. We're, you're not the person I married. No, nah, we, we grew together. <laughs> I'm not the person I married. Shoot, my, my name is still my name. And some of the ways I'm different are because of you. So it's like, <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity. I'm, I'm for everyone. I love, the, I love the children. I love the children. So I think that's a, that's a dynamic that I think you have to really get to, is to have those conversations. But I would start with yourself, because sometimes when we go to our spouse, we're expecting them to come and admit what they're wrong, you know? You ever get in a conflict and you know you got to ask for forgiveness, but you're like, man, I ain't asking for forgiveness. They don't ask for I'm not doing it. And you'll do it if they do it. What, what scripture is that? What scripture? There's no scriptures that say that. A lot of marriage is not about how your spouse, what your spouse should do for you. It's about what you do to honor the Lord for your spouse, whether they do stuff or not. But we just don't like it because we're, you know, we think, hey, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, let's get it together. <laughs> it's like, well, part of being a Christian is whether you have it together or not, I intend to be one. And that's just a lot of it. But anyway, I don't, you know, I don't, you know, we, you know, that's, you know, that's enough of that. So, 
So enough of that. Send me your emails. <laughs> How's it going? I didn't like when you said this. So, I'm sorry. I did, you know. <laughs> Apologize. Um. Oh, is that it? We good, Mac? On the cues? All right. Let's transition. Let's remind ourselves why we're here. If I or whoever preaches from this pulpit forgets to remind ourselves of the reality of the gospel, I love that we go back to this because everything comes back to this. Everything comes back to this. And when we pick up in the next sermon, I would have got to this, but we started a little bit late. But everything comes back to this, this moment, the moment where the son, S-O-N, that is God, humbles himself. Humbles himself in such a way that he's standing before men who are evil and he allows them to punch him in the face. He allows evil men to put a crown of thorns on his head knowing that it will poke his temple, which as a human being will affect your ability to be conscious. He allows men who are evil to convict him of a crime that he did not commit. He allows men who are evil to take a whip made of stone, bone, and glass that each time it hit the skin, it was designed to rip skin off. He allows evil men to place a 100-pound bar on him and have him carry it up a hill, which he was so weak they had to grab Simon of Cyrene, northern Africa, to come and help him carry it. He allows these men to take off his clothes and mock him and laugh and then drag, strike nails into his flesh and then hoist him up. He allows evil men to say, if you're the Messiah, then come down from there. And he does all of that so that you and I could be forgiven for our sins of the sins that we committed this morning, last night, maybe thoughts or whatever, even while I was preaching. He says, because the God, who is the Son, S-O-N, died as if he was a man so that we could spend eternity and see a son that's not S-U-N for his glory and our good. So we eat this together in memory of his body that was broken on our behalf. And we drink this juice as a reminder of the blood that was spilled on our behalf for his glory. Jesus, we, we worship you. We thank you. We are humbled that you have extended grace to us to help us know you. You've given us faith that we did not have as a gift so that we could know you. And even though we're sometimes acting like we're in the darkness, stumbling away, you care about us, and you are committed to us much more than we're committed to you. Lord, if this series is anything, it's you stirring our hearts so that we can go deeper, that we would remember our first love.
Lord, where we're prone to wander, you're prone to be near. And so I pray that as each of us have our own crosses to carry and we all have our own narratives that we can submit to that rival your narrative of truth, I pray that whatever was true today would encourage each of us to take one step seriously, even if it's just taking time to think through what is hindering me from cultivating a fascination in you. Give us the courage to do that. And Spirit, I pray that you would give us the reminder for it will be easy to end this sermon, agree with it, enjoy it, go to lunch, and then by Tuesday forget everything that we heard and agreed with. We don't want to, Lord. We want to, we want to be more like you, even if some days we just don't feel it. Your word says that you will carry us to the end, but you also tell us to keep ourselves in the love of you. So help us to do that for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.